Hello, my name is Christopher Monroe, and welcome to the Soundtrack to a Life. Welcome back to the Soundtrack to a Life. Uh, I am Chris, because that is who I am. Eric is back with us this week. Eric, how have you been since we've seen you last time? I'm back. Excellent. <laughs> I've been well. I feel like no time has passed. Hooray! And uh, Eric and I are here today talking about Red Autumn Falls' uh, 1995 album, Charmer. Ah, the mid-90s Calgary all-ages scene. This was the center of it all where it was all happening. Calgary was the new Halifax, and Halifax the new Seattle, and we all know what had happened there. At least, that's what they told us. And at 16 or 17 years old, there was no way we could have known any better. Nobody buys into the hype like the underage. We have no experiential basis for comparison, and we need that level of excitement at that point in our emotional development. We need that level of importance, whether we understand exactly why or not. We all need, especially at 16 or 17, to feel like what is happening to us matters. So we find reasons why it must. And the scene that sprung up in Calgary in the mid-90s made doing so very, very easy. I'd been going to all-ages punk shows at the Union Hall in Kensington for a couple or three years by that point, in an old Wonder Stuff t-shirt with Idiot across the front, that I'd been given at a giveaway at Sam the Record Man. I'd been going from the age of 13 or 14 and wore the shirt till I outgrew it. Wonder Stuff were rad as hell, still are. And even in my teenage years, I knew the value of branding. So it was my standard uniform when going out to shows. Calgary's all-ages punk scene was a blast. I learned a lot about punk rock during this period, local and otherwise. I caught Field Day and Screeching Weasel and Huevos Rancheros and the Smalls and the Doughboys when those two came through town. And I read a lot of zines and bought shitty high school punk bands cassettes when I could afford to. My home life was sketchy at that point, and it was good for me to not be around the house for my own well-being, physically and mentally. And of the things I did to keep myself busy, punk shows in Kensington were one of my favorites. Punk is meant to provide a sense of community for people who need one, and Calgary's scene in the early mid-90s most certainly did that. But it wasn't what you'd call big. It wasn't trying to be. It was a city's scene of the kids and by the kids and for the kids, and it didn't see any need to be anything more than that. Rotterdam Fall were big. Rotterdam Fall brought scope and ambition and impenetrable self-belief to Calgary's music scene, and in doing so, they warped the scene around them, reshaped it in their own image. Before long, what had been an ever-shifting scene of shitty, fun high school bands, swapping members and forming and breaking up between gigs, had settled into Rotterdam Fall, Calliope, and Placebo, and they were going to be huge. And Calgary would be the new Halifax. And Halifax was the new Seattle. Which, of course, no. Calgary was never the new Halifax. And nobody but the most committed CanCon music nerd could name a third band from the Halifax scene of that period. And Seattle itself was about a year and a half away from collapsing under its own weight. Calliope changed its name to Zucker Baby and was on the radio for a hot minute. And Placebo moved to Toronto and... No member thereof was seen again until 2004, but that's another story. 
And Reverend Fall, the band that once stood athwart Calgary like a colossus, just sort of petered out. Which is a shame, because looking back at their second cassette, Charmer, these guys fucking ruled, and frankly, Canadian indie rock could have done a lot worse. So Eric, you'd never heard Charmer by Reverend Fall, and now you have. Tell me, what do you think? Frankly, I feel like Charmer is the U2 album I've been waiting since Europa for. It has, you know, a kind of, uh, well, yeah, a bit of a throwback feel to that earlier, you know, U2 exuberance before they became all bloated and pompous and pedantic. Yeah, back when they were willing to have fun with the kind of music they were making. Yeah. I felt the production was kind of similar. It kind of channeled a lot of that. I'll buy that with the reverb and whatnot. And this was also a period where indie rock and alternative music had no sense of irony on the radio, and everything had to be earnest and heartfelt, and the choruses had to soar, and being influenced by U2 was acceptable in a band, in a way that I don't know that it is today. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. I'd say that's fair. If you made an album like this today, well, I mean, the kids wouldn't be into it, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. There's too much, well, I mean, Bastille kind of made a U2 record. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But, you know, uh, yeah, and maybe it's an apt comparison to say that, you know, they worked at the Calgary scene. Like, when U2 was kind of still a scene band, but not, you know, the global charity corporate entity titans they became. There's that glorious moment for bands like that, where you get to make an album like Charmer. Yeah, when it still feels exciting. It's the moment before, and then either they blow up, and you get to say that you were there for something that really genuinely did matter. Or for the rest of your life, you have this moment that felt like it was going to matter, and it was all hope and possibility. And, I, I, you know, I found myself wondering, as I listened to Charmer, if maybe it wasn't for the best that we didn't see six more albums from Red Autumn Fall or ten more albums. Because all those bands, I think, were charming in their brevity. Like you talk about the Seattle scene and stuff like that. Like, imagine Kurt Cobain having to do duets with uh, Michael Bublé or something to pay the bills. You know, some of these things have a shelf life. That's true. All of those mid-90s bands, all of the Seattle ones, all of the Britpop ones especially, did kind of take a three-album arc. Album where they're about to be big. Album where they're the biggest star in the world. Album where things are starting to come off the rails. But that said, while I wouldn't necessarily need them to be a band that was still around today, I do feel like we got cheated out of the second and third album off that arc. Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. Charmer feels like the middle album. It, it feels like, yeah, I mean, it feels like a radio single or four. Yeah. It feels like a good non-CJSW radio song away from being a much bigger deal than it was. And this was a period where that very much was on the table in Canadian music. Naked Ladies sold 100,000 copies of a cassette off the stage at shows. Moxie Fruvis sold 30,000, 40,000 copies of a cassette off the stage in shows. Printing up your own cassette and selling it off the stage was good enough to jumpstart somebody. But I wonder if that doesn't speak to a gap in college radio in Canada versus the U.S., where you've got that incubator in the States that is college radio, right, where a band like that can get a little bit of radio play in Buffalo on college radio. Whereas in Canada, you're down to busking, selling it off the stage, 
and trying to get in Speaker's Corner to do a video. Hey, man, CSW's <laughs> rad as fuck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ab absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just not sure that it has the reach that U.S. college radio has. Maybe. I could kind of buy it. It's interesting comparing bands of this style and this period to bands of a similar style and period from either the U.S. or the U.K. There wasn't the same jumpstart for bands like Sloan or The Odds or any of the Canadian power pop groups of this time period, but there was a much longer tail. Like, all of the 90s bands are still kind of going. A lot of them, though, didn't really hit outside of Canada, right? And, I mean, you even see that in, uh, well, you know, the Tragically Hip never really made a footprint outside of Canada. Sloan is not particularly well-known. Even a band like Spirit of the West, like, you would think the music's great, the production value's there, and where's the disconnect? And I feel like Canada was doing good stuff at the time. I believe you and I were both in the audience at Mixfest for Rhymes with Orange, uh, the Headstones. You know, these are all very, very similar trajectory bands that could have been big. And yeah, this album's a great example of that. Where you listen to it and you go, who isn't going to love this album? You can play this anywhere. This is. It's universal, it's well produced, it's well done. There's no reason why this shouldn't have been a bigger album. Now, this was a glam record in the middle of grunge. And that probably was some kind of roadblock. Okay, but I mean, you say, you know, you were doing the punk scene in Calgary and stuff like that and spreading your wings. When I was 16 or 17, I was still very much subject to my parents' musical whims. So, like, Dave LeBaron and I were only just discovering Queen then. Like, this fit right in, you know? I didn't have a Bowie record until I was 16 or 17. You know, my folks listened to a lot of uh, Creedence and older classic rock stuff. So... No, this would have fit right in. What was your first Bowie record, by the way? I, I am ashamed to admit I was a member of the uh, Columbia House Record Club. So what was mostly available were Greatest Hits albums. So I learned a lot in the early days from Greatest Hits stuff. Bob Marley was, you know, Greatest Hits. Bowie was Greatest Hits. And even now I find myself circling back. You talk about Susie and the Banshee box set. I'm working from... 20th Century Masters, Greatest Hits albums, right? And to go back and, and discover those records from that perspective, there's a lot of meat on the bone there. And I would encourage anybody who hasn't experienced an artist from their albums to go and do that. Yeah, it's a different experience. And I think a lot of people, especially people our age, getting into artists from the 60s and 70s, did it through Greatest Hits packages. This was a period where we were still paying full price for music, and we had contemporary artists to buy new material from, as well as going back and rediscovering Bowie. I, I had to buy Jive Bunny and the Master Mixers on CD. I mean, you didn't <laughs> have to. It was your privilege <laughs> to buy Jive Bunny and the Master Mixers. <laughs> Millennials or Gen Z people listening to this show... The next time someone our age starts ragging on you about music today, remind us that Jive Bunny and the Maxster Mixers ever happened, and that we just stood there and let it. I can only imagine that the Master Mixers worked in some sweatshop in the Philippines. I mean, that has to be one guy. No, the, That has to be one guy knocking it out in a weekend in order to get to lunch early. And the Master Mixers, plural. That's true. <laughs>
It's true. It would take more than one master mixer. I feel there has to be at least two. For appropriate mastery of that mix. That's fabulous. You kids should go out and check it out right now. There were... Seriously, stop the podcast. I know I'm not supposed to be saying this, but stop this podcast right now and get Jive Bunny and the Master Mixers. It's party time. That's the one you want. I mean, it is party time. <laughs> oh my god, it's insane. That was nonsense. Why was that a thing? I don't know. It was the 90s. All kinds of things were a thing that should not have been. It sure was. It sure was. I'd like to chalk it up to pre-millennial tension. But that tricky record was so good. Why would it have anything to do? (laughs) (laughs) Anything. Anything and everything was permissible in the 90s. That's true. We had no sense of what that decade was supposed to be. No, no. Just a lot of apprehension about our role in the world now that we were in the amazing year 2000. Man, I still want my rocket boots. (laughs) Or at least fewer Nazis. I mean, the internet is a great way to discover new music, but there are so many Nazis. Whereas the all-ages punk scene of the early 90s was also a pretty good way to discover new music. And there were only a few Nazis. <laughs> and they had swastikas tattooed on them. For ease of identification. Yes. Not to get political, but Nazis today are fucking cowards. <laughs> Tattoo that shit on your face. <laughs> <laughs> then tell me you take it seriously. Right. You're a cosplay kid. <laughs> but aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> you only say that because I am going for Halloween dressed as Depeche Mode. <laughs> It was a simpler time. It's true. (laughs) I was going to go as Michael Stipe, but that dude was not wearing much of a costume during the Losing My Religion video. That would be a little obscure. Right? White shirt, black suit pants, sleeves rolled up. I feel like you should stare at the ground. Uh, That's true. That's true. Do that ridiculous dance where your fists go into the air and then down to the ground, opposite each other. It was the mid-90s. Michael Stipe was inventing dances. Maybe I'll go as just... The Radiohead song? The Radiohead video. Oh! Lay on the ground and refuse to tell people why? <laughs> That's all. That sounds great. <laughs> be the life of the party. It'd be the death of the party, surely. <laughs> that was the point, and yeah. yet, here we all are. It's true. So you're going to a lot of shows during this period in Calgary? No, not one. Uh, <laughs> Mixfest was actually the very first show I ever attended. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. It was. It was worthwhile. But, you know, it's not very grassroots, right? It was mostly bands from Vancouver. Big. We were in the dome. Yeah, I feel like I really missed out on the local music scene. Even Erica talks about, like, going to shows at the Multi and stuff like that. I never did that. You know, these days, I take in a little more live music. Mikey's Juke Joint's nice. You know, Ship and Anchor. We enjoy Peter and the Wolves. Yep. Uh, Dickens is a good venue. Broken City is a good venue, turns out. We have a ton of smaller-scale music venues. You know, people will will tell you that the music scene in Calgary is not that great. Those people are wrong. I should think that. I think there's a lot more going on here than people give it credit for. It's maybe not well-supported, which is really sad. People don't seem to see going to live music in a small venue as a thing to do. Yeah, that checks out. And I don't know if that's because UFC won't be on while that's happening, or no one will be riding a cow. I mean, I would watch a band ride a cow. Okay, kids out there, take notes. Uh, maybe a band where you're all on cows. Yeah. The lead singer's on a mechanical bull. 
Probably bad. some kind of grindcore type situation because the songs aren't going to be longer than eight seconds. Yes. <laughs> very good. Very good. <laughs> uh, the, the last band I saw at Broken City was Helvis, which was a fabulous night. They're kind of a, a psychobilly take on Elvis, where every member in the band is Elvis Presley. Yes. But it's if he was risen from the dead in all of his worst moments. That sounds like a terrific <laughs> show, actually. At one point, the lead singer actually stumbled away from the microphone to order himself a drink at the bar, mid-song. The way that you'd imagine Elvis <laughs> would. If he was playing Broken City. Yeah. To a crowd of literally tens of people. Ooh. <laughs> That sounds very watchable. Well, <laughs> mental note. <laughs> Should Elvis turn up? And yeah, there's definitely... I have it on good authority from the last time I had Live On that Calgary has a thriving underground punk scene of shitty high school bands, which are the best high school bands in the world. Bubbling just under the surface. And you'd think with Calgary's immense love of street festivals in the summertime... A punk festival. I mean, kind of the lesser venues on Sled Island? I, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. And, and I have to admit to being guilty of not taking in Sled Island because there are only so many bands with a dollar sign or a triangle in the name that I can research at any given time. Yeah, I will uh, take in the token band for the old shout-out Flaming Lips. That was a real <laughs> good show. And then I will randomly walk into a concert on accident where I go to Sloth on my way to work and it turns out there are three local punk bands playing because they want some of that Sled Island energy. So they found their own energy and they made that happen at the venue that they could find. See, I love that spirit. I feel like Vancouver's a little more like that. You know, it feels like Thursday, Friday nights in Vancouver, every door's open and somebody's playing inside. That's the power of a local scene, is that it's something that you've built yourself. Which, taking it back to Red Autumn Fall, it really did feel, at the time, like the first step towards something like that. Like you felt like these guys were going to be the next U2. And it turned out instead that they were the next Kingmaker. But I also stand by Kingmaker, so I'm fine with that. The chorus is pounded. Simeon has one of the most interesting and evocative voices that I have ever heard to this day. The guitars went jangle, jangle, jangle in a way that the way that indie guitars ought to since about 1984 on. Like, they were as perfect a local band as there could have been for the kind of music that I had already been absorbing up until that point. And I guess that's the interesting thing about a local scene, is that one probably shouldn't let the fact that it's local minimize it. Charmer's a great album. It doesn't matter where, it doesn't matter when, it's a great album. It sounds good. Yeah, it's eminently playable. It sounds good. The sentiments are on track. But we have this tendency, I think, to think that if they're not the next U2, there's a disappointment in that. When Calliope became Zucker Baby, and they had one video on Much Music for 28 seconds, it felt like an arrival, and then it felt like a terrible disappointment when it didn't stick. Which is a shame. That song was good. Yeah. I'll stand by Andromeda. Andromeda got there. Yeah. And honestly, so what if you have to go back to selling import records at the HMV? You were on Much Music yeah. for a hot 28 seconds, and nobody can say that. So, I mean, maybe that's part of the local music scene, is good enough has to be good enough sometimes. That's true. You made the music you wanted to make, and you called no man mister. That's worth something, even if you do need to get a regular job. I bought a copy of this on cassette at Recordland. 
because I saw it. And I am an impulse buying type person. And I don't know what I'm going to do with it. But buying a Red Autumn Fall cassette on a whim was an important part of my growing up process. And I wanted to do it again. So now <laughs> I've got one. See, I understand the allure of vinyl from a post-apocalyptic perspective. That, uh, you know, you can strap a brass horn to your back and drop a needle on it and charge people a cup of boiled wheat to play them a song that they remember. And it'll be, you know, pitchy and weird and maybe off-key. The cassette, I just don't know what you do with it after I, the end of the world. But it's still happening. Cassette's coming back now. <laughs> CD will never come back because CD will never go away. You have to wait for the baby boomers to die. CD is where they got off new formats of music. That is true. They are still buying CDs from the first time. It's like an LP, but it fits in your visor. It's so convenient, you guys. <laughs> and this feels like the most cassette band, cassette band, from this cassette band period of Canadian music. Like, I listened to this on Spotify because I cannot play a cassette. Just straight up, the technology does not exist. How many, uh, how many monthly listeners... I did write it down. How many monthly listeners do you believe that Red Autumn Fall has in 2018? I would say 104. You would be overestimating it. Oh, no. <laughs> 26 people <laughs> listen, to Red, listen to Red Autumn Fall every single month, 23 years after they moved out of Calgary and then stopped being a band. So the royalty checks have got a number in the threes of cents. I'm sure. I'm sure. But at the same time, for a band that never got on the radio, for a band that never got on much music, for a band that, so far as I know, never got a label release, they are keeping some portion... Like, they're keeping enough people to play a shitty gig in a shitty club. Yes, yes, that's true. That's true. I've been in quite a few shows where there were less than 26 people. Yeah. And I feel like I could happily have a drink with any of these people and would bet money that I have had a drink with some of them. Maybe even this evening. And don't know it. <laughs> I'm sure. Like the show that we were at this evening, there's a non-zero chance that one of the olds took in a couple of Red Autumn Fall shows <laughs> in the mid-90s. See, I feel like as far as mid-90s Calgary bands go, I feel like Platonic Devils has more listeners. Probably. I feel like Forbidden Dimension, not least because they still play sometimes. As do the Platonic Devils. Yeah. What was the name of that um, Nouveau Swing Band? The Dino Martinis. Dino Martinis. Yes, they were. They are fantastic at a wedding. They're so good. <laughs> They're and still together. Also, <laughs> why did lounge music come back? <laughs> for 28 minutes, mostly because of a Gap commercial? In the late 90s. No, that was why swing music came back. Okay. What did lounge music... Like, I feel like there were a lot of really specific subgenres of music in the late 90s that we didn't take the time to interrogate properly, <laughs> and we arguably should have. Like, ska revival, fine. Ska comes back sometimes. Swing revival, okay. There was that one Gap ad... <laughs> Lounge revival? Why are we reviving things? Yeah, yeah. Beatnik didn't come back. No, no, so it did that not. that was a positive, I want to say. And then once all of those things had passed, we were ready to get into something contemporary and new. 
which had turned out to be rap metal and... Read horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but it was new horrible. It was ours and it sucked. Yes. It was not a reaction. Yes. Would you rather listen to something completely unique, but that sucks, or something that does not suck, but that is exactly the same as how your parents listen to it? I feel like you may have just summed up the central question of music. I think that that is probably the case. I believe that is actually the central conundrum, is yes, it will be new, but most of it will suck until someone masters that particular take, and on rap metal... I want to say Rage Against the Machine. I mean, it's got to be Rage Against the Machine, right? It's got to be. It's not Creed. No. I, I was recently <clears throat> in a bar, 10 p.m., but we were the only ones left drinking. And they wanted us out badly, so they put on Creed. Like a whole album of Creed. That is commitment to kicking you the fuck out of their bar. So, not to be dissuaded... Uh, we just sat and sang along with Creed as loudly as we could, much to the consternation of the bar staff. Oh, man. It was a horrible night for all. That does sound very bad. All were punished. I did that with um, Huey Lewis and the News. My karaoke host of choice misentered a disc number when ordering a disc, and instead of whatever she had meant to order, she ordered the 25 greatest hits of Huey Lewis and the News and was complaining about it because who the fuck is going to sing 25 of Huey Lewis and the News' greatest hits, to which I turned to my roommate and went, do you want to drive everyone out of this bar? I could nail 23. Yeah, we got up. We got up there. I'm happy being stuck with you. That was a good song. It's a good song. Huey Lewis and the News are the very best example of what a band can accomplish when they don't worry about being cool anymore. I, I'm They're just going to settle down and be the best fucking bar blues band that they know how to be. Write 12 songs that sound good on the radio during summertime and not give a shit what anyone thinks of them. Also, Doug and the Slugs. I'm more of a team, hashtag Team Huey. <laughs> but if you're hashtag Team Doug. <laughs> Any of the, and the bands of the late 80s. Mike and the Mechanics. I want to say, oh, and Mike and the Mechanics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Pretty much interchangeable. And Florence and the Machine. All four of those bands were basically the same. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, close. <laughs> Give take. Yeah, yeah. So, between the break beats and the reverb, mm -hmm. My Friend Deceiver, the most 90s song? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's the thing on this album, is the zeitgeist is totally there. Yeah. Like, they got it. It's totally dialed in. It's interesting, because growing up immersed in that, you don't realize that there are era-specific tropes and idioms to music that are going to date. It's just yes. what music sounds like. Yes. And then when you get a few years out, you realize, oh, songs were only going to sound like this. And it sounds like being home. You just got listen, done listening to Drake. <sighs> Two chains. First of all, he has way more chains than you. <laughs> No, I am wearing chains. Uh, I'm only wearing one chain. And, uh, I'm wearing eight chains. Okay, then you are four times better, presumably, than two chains. Simple math. <laughs> and secondly, <laughs> have we turned on Drake? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can never see Drake as, as anyone other than that kid on Degrassi that got shot on the basketball court. Yeah, here's my thing with Drake that somebody pointed out to me. He has a superpower in that he can walk off things that would... Definitely sink the career of 
any other artist. Like he is oh. a Canadian former child star right. in a Cosby sweater, sad rapping about how much he loves his mom. Is he the Canadian Taylor Swift? He might be the Canadian Taylor Swift. And like he started with that. And now everything that happens to him is not more embarrassing. Like he dances like Drake in the Hotline Bling video all of the time. And that is why no matter how badly his feud with Pusha T went. Mm. And also, if you're a Canadian former child star in a Cosby sweater, sad rapping about how much you love your mom, maybe rap beep is not for you. I don't mean to tell you how to run your career. Obviously, you're doing a great job. That was the most one-sided rap beef that I've ever seen <laughs> from my admittedly not immersed in that culture perspective. Canadian rap beefs, at the, 101. At the same time, he definitely got up and walked away and everything was fine you're, because no. Drake can do anything and get away with it, apparently, and then have more top 10 singles in a year than the Beatles because he gamed Spotify I was going to say, briefly had 28 songs in the U.S. top 40. I feel like the bar is low. I feel like when you can give away an album with a concert ticket and end up with a best-selling album as a result. David Byrne deserved a top 10 record. <laughs> that record is fucking rad. Everyone should listen to American Utopia. Granted, two copies of it arrived at my house because I bought tickets to his show. I mean, are we going to say All That You Can't Leave Behind was a top-selling album? Simply because it will not get off my phone. <laughs> All that you can't leave behind was one of the good ones. What one was it? Songs of Innocence? Oh, Songs of Innocence. That showed up randomly. <laughs> Songs of Innocence. <laughs> I'll cape for All That You Can't Leave Behind. <laughs> Beautiful Day was a jam. <laughs> what record are we talking about right now that you think I won't stand up and defend late period U2? I'm just saying Charmer was a better U2 album than either of those U2 albums. That is arguably the case. You 2 definitely, as far as all that you can't leave behind goes, benefited enormously from the number of Americans who wanted to be told that things were going to be okay in 2002. So what we've learned is that Bono is an accomplice. <laughs> I mean, I guess if we're following the money, who benefits? Mostly Bono. Mostly Bono. Wait. Most of the time. Does he also cause famines? I think you can follow the money back. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I gotta go revisit my whole appreciation for the band U2. What does Bob Geldof think about this? Because if anybody knows, it's Bob. That's true. That is true. <laughs> the dude who did not get paid or see his career benefit in any way from any of the work that he did fighting famine. And Red Autumn Fall did not make a better Bob Geldof album. No. Bob Geldof albums are perfect. They're so weird. <laughs> what was his like? What was his gig? Did he did he become a TV host? He did something because he kept releasing a record every four or five years that no one but like me and Phoebe Lowry bought, and <laughs> I blame everyone else for that because they were really fun. But I feel like that argument has been settled and I was not on the winning side. But he must have had a job. What was Bob Geldof's job? I would bet money he hosted a BBC show. Maybe producer? Maybe. I mean, he wrote one of the best song songs of all time. 
and he owns a Nobel Peace Prize about American gun violence. What? Oh, sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't like Mondays. Oh, yeah. I was, I was thinking about Do They Know It's Christmas? The far shittier. I mean, that's but also... Desperately more successful song. Good song. Sure. <laughs> I mean, everybody definitely paid money for it. I don't imagine he paid any of those performers. No, but he didn't get paid either. All the money went to uh, famine relief. So it went to Bono. This uh, is what you're saying. All the money got routed to Bono. That son of a bitch. That son of a bitch. Which explains how the Edge buys all those pedals. That makes sense. Pedals are expensive, kids. My favorite Bono story that I heard recently, Bono started wearing sunglasses everywhere he went in the early 90s, he admitted, because his eyes were fucked up. They were starting to degenerate as a natural part of aging. And he, in my mind, correctly, decided that he would rather that everyone think that he was a douchebag who wore sunglasses indoors then admit that his body was aging because he felt that looking young but like a douchebag as a rock star was something he could get away with more easily. Yeah, I think that's fair. Because, no, I mean, it's the right call. That's totally fair. Yeah. And he was right. That's, yeah. how, that's how people feel. Yeah, that benefited him enormously. That was the correct call. He got like another five records worth of relevance. I must say three of them good. Out of the deal. And what now? They still sell out every stadium. I'm still on that train enough that when they put out a record, I listened to it. They're in that same, if I'm being completely honest, level of commitment that I have to Pearl Jam. Whereas when a new record comes out, I will uh, listen to it and live and breathe it for like two weeks. And I will argue with you that it's the best that they've ever done. That it's a return to form. It is a new classic. And then at the end of that two weeks, I probably won't listen to it again. That sounds like any better. Yeah, yeah. But like, in the moment. <laughs> every Pearl Jam record is the best thing that they have ever done. For Pearl Jam, oh, I might even buy that. <laughs> yeah, like, six months later, I get it, you're back to listening to 10 through no code. But, yeah, I mean, everything pre-Lemon. <laughs> you don't like Lemon? No, I think Lemon's really where it breaks for me. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean... But Numb was great. <laughs> like, half of Zuropa was very good. Half of Zuropa taken in context. Yeah. Out of context is age weirdly. Yes. Because it sounded too mid-90s in ways that we later decided we were going to regret. <laughs> but isn't that always the cycle? Right. Half the music that you liked at 17 is the best music in the world, and it always will be. And the other half, you are just so embarrassed by and the really fun thing as a 17 year old is that you don't get to know which half is which <laughs> until 15 years later so you're swinging blind baby mid 90s the 80s were so gauche <laughs> i totally couldn't touch the 80s fuck that <laughs> but by late 90s well, they're coming back into vogue, and by 2000, the canon has settled, and you know what's good and what's not. That's exactly right. That's how I, exactly how I felt about 70s classic rock going to high school. Yes. It was easy to love. All of the hard work had been done for you. Yes. Pruning out the music from the 70s that was fucking nonsense. Exactly. Which is how I think we have failed the current generation, due to our intense commitment to irony and keeping everything at arm's length, 
because classic rock fans from the 70s passing music along to us passed it down in some kind of major canon that you could listen to and respect and have it change your life. Whereas we're passing down Aqua or the Spice Girls. And when people are going, wait, this is what that decade had to offer? Right. I know, it's hilarious. Right, instead of loving. But maybe, but maybe it shouldn't be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I like to do now, when Recordland has their warehouse sale, what they do is they take all the records that nobody in their right mind would ever pay money for, and uh, they shove them in the warehouse. But they're still sorted by people's collection. They're not alphabetized in any way. So it's very illuminating, actually, to go into the warehouse and do a little archaeology. You know, you might find yourself in the midst of uh, 15 Duran Duran discs, or uh, there's a lot of Anne Marie back there. But what you will learn very quickly is which albums everybody had. And there's a reason for that. And they're not worth anything. You get them at a buck a throw, but you can very quickly educate yourself on what was everybody listening to. And it's not always the stuff they curated down. If you don't have a Nana Muscuri album, you don't know the what, 70s. <laughs> what were you doing from, during the 70s? Yeah. I mean, like, Anne Murray was the biggest star in the world. Also, I know this from a book of popstrology that I was gifted one time. The only number one hit single in 1978 that was not in some way, shape, or form a disco song. Yes, it was the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever, basically in its entirety. Yes. The Rolling Stones doing a disco song. Rod Stewart doing a disco song, and one random Anne-Marie song, <laughs> not giving a fuck about fashion. I'm all for disco. Disco is fun, but it shouldn't be your whole diet. Having every number one <laughs> song be disco feels a little bit like candy for breakfast. It seems like a good idea while you're choosing to do it. But I get why two years later people had turned on this genre of music and needed to give it a break. For sure, and do mountains of cocaine. How much cocaine can you do? Not you specifically, <laughs> but you as a broader <laughs> culture. Society. <laughs> mountains of the stuff. You have to do mountains of cocaine, I guess. does Columbia have? I mean, I, I'm I mean all, of, all of my own musical heroes were on heroin, so I can't really judge what your fucking favorite band is. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm also down with Twisted Sister, Burning Disco. That's great. Things have to come and things have to go. You know, when it's Drake's time, let's all hope he knows. Let's all hope he goes like a year too late. <laughs> Just one album too late. Yeah, I'm all for a train wreck. Like, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I don't, I don't want to remember Katy Perry fondly. I want her to release a record where she tries to get political. And the whole world explains to her why this was not a good idea for you. I want Black Eyed Peas to cover I've Had the Time of My Life, play at the Super Bowl, and then have someone take them quietly aside and explain to them that they're not allowed to be a band anymore. Like that time Queen had to write soundtrack music for like five years. Because it turns out they had bought into disco just like uh, nine months too late, and they needed a minute before (laughs) 70s legacy bands became a genre of music again in the later 80s. That's right. And you can't stay committed to what you've been doing this whole time. If we did, I would still be at a Red Autumn Fall show in a shitty velour shirt that I had bought from Le Chateau. I feel like you'd be coming back literally any moment. Oh, I hope that it's not. <laughs> Those shirts were garbage. And the shiny ones, in some kind of a metallic shirt in not even the color of a metal. You could, you could get them in metallic gold or metallic silver or metallic um, white. 
But you can also get metallic purple or metallic blue, the way of, that metals so frequently are. Purple metals out there. And then wear them out to clubs, and they were just of not high enough quality. Women were supposed to want to touch your fabric. That was... Yeah, I believe that that was... <laughs> the, the goal. Never happened. It would never happen. No, never. I, I had a similar pair of uh, black pony fur pants from Le Chateau at the same period. I thought, oh, women are going to want to touch these pants. That was not true. Yeah. Is Le Chateau... I mean, they're still a store. Oh, yeah, for sure. They definitely don't have the same cultural... I mean, are you going currency. to... Are you going to the high school dance? No, I'm not. I will admit, I am not going to a high school dance. You probably don't need anything from Le Chateau. That checks out. That checks out. (laughs) But great at the time. (laughs) Great at the time. Let you know that you were one of the glam kids, not one of the punk kids. That's right. I I, I stopped shopping at Le Chateau far too late for an adult man. I mean, probably, but that was the style of the time. Yeah, it was all right. (laughs) Listen to some weird, glammy pop music. So, I guess that's bringing us close to the end. So, I'm going to end with three questions. Eric, you ever going to listen to Charmer by Red Autumn Fall again? You know, I will. I mean, is it going to be heavy in the rotation? I don't know. It's got that 95 sound, but you know what it did do was it drove home that when you want to hear those nostalgia sounds, there are still new albums out there. No, that's true. I'm getting uh, getting a ton of new Canadian indie rock thrown my way doing this show. As everyone brings me their favorite band from when they were 17. There's a lot of I know your age now based on what record you picked happening with my guests on this show. And as far as um, exploring their catalog further, well, there's no catalog. So you can't. They got one other EP. It's very good. I would heartily recommend it to anything. Red Autumn Fall is available on Spotify if anybody out there who was not in this very specific city during this very specific period of time. I'm imagining, knowing as I do how many of my listeners, base whether they're listening on their foreknowledge of the record, that this will be one of my least listened to <laughs> episodes. But you could be monthly listener number 27 for Red Autumn Fall. Could you please? Could we get it up to 50? Some of you listen to Red Autumn Fall after this. This is an internet shout-out. You'll be very glad you did. And if you're a member of Red Autumn Fall, term searching yourself on Google because you've had a rough day, thank you for making this record. It's real fucking good, and it really holds up. If we're going to end the show, what uh, what song do you want to end it on? I want to say Panacea. For me, it's Panacea. All right, we're closing out on Panacea. This has been the Soundtrack to a Life. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at SoundtrackCast. We are at SoundtrackCast.com. Like us, rate us, uh, review us, subscribe to us on whatever podcatcher you're using. It is super useful to get reviews. It helps us get out to a new audience. Eric, what do you want to plug? Uh, and Andy, send Chris a mattress, please. Yeah. Can mattress. Get a mattress? This is literally a podcast. Someone should be sending me a mattress. I had to buy my own mattress like a goddamn peasant. This has been Soundtrack to a Life. We will see you guys in a couple of weeks. Yeah.